This e-multiple sclerosis review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. There are several MRI red flags as well. First, the absence of dissemination in space and dissemination in time on brain MRI, and also the fact that the spinal cord MRI was normal. And a major red flag here is the lumbar puncture results, so the CSF analysis showing negative oligoclonal bands. Is that MS diagnosis accurate? Welcome to E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Red flags, warning signs that a patient's MS diagnosis may not be accurate. How are they recognized? What other conditions might they point to? Do they challenge an MS diagnosis or signal another condition in addition to MS? That's what we're here to talk about today. Our guest is Dr. Gabrielle Macaron, a neuroimmunologist from St. Joseph University and Hotel Dieu de France Hospital in Beirut, Lebanon, and an adjunct staff at the Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. For Dr. Macaron's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, eMultipleSclerosisReview.org, and click on the Volume 4, Issue 8 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eMultiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Macaron, thank you for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. Our first learning objective is to identify the clinical and radiological red flags that warrant evaluation of an alternate diagnosis to MS. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take us to the clinic, but before we do that, I want to ask you to define the term red flag, at least as how we'll be using it in today's discussion. So if you would please, Dr. Macaron, what is a red flag? A red flag is a clinical or paraclinical indicator in the patient's presentation that will suggest an alternate diagnosis, or in other words, that the diagnosis or provisional diagnosis of MS may be incorrect and that this flag needs to be investigated. Thank you, doctor. Now, keeping our first learning objective in mind, to identify the clinical and radiological red flags that warrant evaluation of an alternate diagnosis to MS, let me ask you to take us into the clinic with a patient scenario. This is a 24-year-old man who presented for a seven-day history of subacute onset blurred vision in the left eye. Symptoms rapidly worsened over the past few days and reached the peak of their severity at day four. He reports profound decrease in his visual acuity in the left eye, and he is only able to distinguish light from darkness. He denies any retroorbital pain while moving the eye, and there is no past history of transit neurological sign to suggest an MS relapse. These vision problems, uh, how can we know if they point to MS in this individual or if they're related to something else? Walk us through the diagnostic steps, if you would, please. What do we know about his history? His visual symptoms are indeed suggestive of subacute monocular optic neuritis, and this is a very common presentation of MS relapses. However, we do need to obtain a complete history and perform a complete physical examination. We can use also paraclinical testing to clarify if there is no better explanation for this patient's symptom. So this man has a past medical history prominent for Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, and that is an arrhythmia that may or may not be genetic. However, his family history is prominent for it, since both his sister and mother have it. Our patient was treated at age 19 with ablation, and this corrected the problem. He also has a history of epilepsy since childhood, and it has been very well controlled on lamotrigine. So, potential wolf, Parkinson, white, and epilepsy. Do you consider either of those as signals favoring an MS diagnosis? Both conditions might be unrelated, and they actually can appear in any individual, especially those with a positive family history. 
But, you know, patients with MS are also allowed to have other diseases, so their presence does not argue against or for MS. However, we should be always exhaustive in history taking because sometimes there is a link between these entities. Point taken, doctor. Now, this patient, his physical exam, what did it show and what tests were done to help clarify the diagnosis? On physical exam, visual acuity was normal in the right eye and it was severely decreased in the left eye with only light perception. And the left pupil was sluggish and poorly reactive to light. Fundus exam showed a two-plus pallor of the left optic nerve, and the brain MRI was done, and it showed one round three-millimeter paraventricular lesion and two punctiform subcortical lesions in the left frontal lobe. Cervical spine MRI was normal, and we then did a lumbar puncture, and it was negative for CSF oligoclonal bands. In light of those results, and because of the severity of his optic neuropathy, he was given one gram of IV methylprednisolone for five days, and he only noticed a 10% improvement in his vision. And unfortunately, this improvement was only transient. Three weeks later, he presented again with similar symptoms in the right eye. And on exam, he had a visual acuity of 20 over 800 in this right eye. And again, only light perception in the left eye. So this patient was nearly blind. Fundus exam was repeated, and it showed a papillary edema and punctuate hemorrhages in the right eye as well as disc atrophy in the left eye. Add it up for us, if you would, please, doctor. Which features, if any, of this patient's clinical episode would you consider indicative of an MS attack? Several features are compatible with MS in this case. First, the patient's age. He's 24. MS typically occurs in otherwise healthy young individuals between 20 and 40 years. Okay. Second, the subacute presentation of his optic neuropathy. And we do know that optic neuritis is one of the most common initial presentation of MS. And MS should always be in the differential diagnosis in patients presenting with optic neuritis. And finally, the periventricular lesion on brain MRI. Although dissemination in space is not met here, the two punctiform subcortical lesions in the left frontal lobes are considered nonspecific and should not be taken into consideration for the diagnosis of MS. And I would like here to mention that optic nerve lesions on orbital MRI are not included in the MRI criteria for dissemination in space as typical MS lesions because of the difficulty and variability in interpretation of such MRIs. Our learning objective has tasked us with identifying the clinical and paraclinical red flags that might point to an alternative diagnosis to MS. What have we found so far? There are many atypical clinical features in this case. First, the absence of retroorbital pain with eye movement, and we do know that this is present in over 90% of MS-related optic neuritis. Second, the severity of optic neuritis, it was too severe for MS. Typically, optic neuritis is mild to moderate in MS, as well as the presence of optic nerve edema and hemorrhages and subsequent disc atrophy a couple of weeks later on fundus exam. In MS, fundus exam is typically normal. And involvement of the second eye three weeks later. In MS, typically optic neuritis is unilateral. It's possible for patients to have sequential optic neuritis in one eye, then the other. However, the interval of time between both events in this patient is a bit too short. We should mention also the poor response to IV steroids because those are typically at least partially effective in MS-related uh, symptoms. What red flags do you see on the patient's MRI? First, the absence of dissemination in space and dissemination in time on brain MRI, and also the fact that the spinal cord MRI was normal. 
although this could still be clinically isolated syndrome or MS in its early stages. A major red flag here is the lumbar puncture results, so the CSF analysis showing negative oligoclonal bands. We do know that oligoclonal bands are positive in more than 90% of patients with MS, and we should always think that maybe it's a false negative if the detection method used was electrophoresis instead of immunofixation, because this is less sensitive, or if it's too early in the disease course. Finally, this patient has a past medical history and family history. And although we, we already spoke about this, they're not red flags per se, but we should keep in mind that some genetic disorders, such as mitochondrial disorders, are associated with cardiac arrhythmia and epilepsy and sometimes MS-looking lesions. The 2017 McDonald Criteria for MS Diagnosis. Uh, that was the focus of your newsletter issue. How applicable are the McDonald Criteria in this case? So for dissemination in time, theoretically, the patient had two clinical events. So yes, dissemination in time is met. For dissemination in space, well, no, based on those criteria. But if we were to have another reason, for example, in the juxtacortical region, then dissemination in space would be met. My point here is that this patient had several red flags. So the pretest probability of having MS is low, which in turn is going to decrease the positive predictive value of the diagnostic criteria. This case really highlights, again, the importance of only applying these criteria in patients who have a typical demyelinating syndrome and when there is no better explanation for the patient's presentation. Paraclinical testing. How can that be used to guide the diagnosis in this case? Here we must think of causes of severe optic neuropathy that can present subacutely. In this case, testing for myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein IgG or MOG IgG and aquaporin-4 IgG would definitely be part of the workup, looking for neuromyelitis optica or MOG-associated disorders. We do know that in these entities, optic nerve involvement is frequently severe and can be bilateral. However, there is some response to steroids, although often incomplete, and this did not happen in our patient. On orbital MRI, neuromyelitis optica and MOG-associated disorder lesion often involve more than half of the optic nerve lens and often involve the optic chiasm as well. Oligoclonal bands are typically negative in these entities, and that was the case also in our patient. And although disc edema and subsequently disc atrophy can be seen in severe neuromyelitis optica and uh, MOG-associated disorder-related optic neuritis, in our patients, the presence of punctuate hemorrhage on fundus exam orients more towards Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy, or LHON, which can be confirmed with single gene testing of the MT and D4 gene. And this gene is responsible of 95% of cases of LHON. And our patient indeed had a pathogenic mutation in this gene, and the diagnosis of LHON was confirmed. One of the important differential diagnoses here is neurosarcoidosis. It's indeed the great mimicker. It can present with optic neuropathy, but lung involvement is often frequent. So a chest CT can help to look for this potential differential diagnosis. And of course, infectious and toxic causes of optic neuropathy are always to be mentioned, but are less likely in this context especially that the sequential involvement of each eye and not both at the same time, and the absence of immunosuppression and the absence of exposure to specific toxins. Thank you for bringing us this case, Dr. Macaron. Let's review what we've been discussing through the lens of our learning objective, identifying the clinical and radiological red flags that warrant evaluation of an alternative diagnosis to MS. 
What are the most important things that our listeners need to understand from our discussion? First, clinicians should always consider an alternate diagnosis in patients who have an atypical optic neuropathy, particularly an optic neuropathy causing the patient to be blind. This is very atypical of MS. And alternate diagnosis such as neuromyelitis optica, MUG-associated disorders, Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy, toxic optic neuropathies, among others, should be searched for. Second, it's very important to know that sometimes it is a mess, despite some atypical features. But we need to strongly consider alternate diagnosis when there are many red flags in the same patient, such as the case we just discussed. And third, spinal cord MRI, CSF studies, OCTs, blood work, and other tests, depending on the context, are often needed to guide our clinical judgment based on which red flag is observed. For example, here, genetic testing made sense based on the initial workup and the patient evolution. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Gabrielle Macaron from St. Joseph University in Beirut and the Cleveland Clinic in just a moment. We'll continue our discussion in just a minute, but first I want to ask you a not-so-simple question. How has COVID-19 changed the way you treat your patients with multiple sclerosis? Do you have questions about the impact of MSDMTs on COVID-19 risk? About when, if ever, to delay dosing or stop therapy? Or probably the most important question, your patient has just tested positive for COVID-19. What should you do now? You'll find answers in the Multiple Sclerosis Educational Webinar, Managing MS in the Era of COVID-19. Join expert faculty from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Dr. Michael Kornberg and Dr. Elias Sotirkos as they discuss evidence-based strategies to help keep patients with MS safe from COVID-19. The online Managing MS in the Era of COVID-19 webinar is accredited for 0.5 AMA, AAPA, or ANCC credits and is provided without charge. To watch Managing MS in the Era of COVID-19, visit cov19ms.dkb.com. That's cov19ms.dkbmed.com. And now, back to our discussion. Welcome back to this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. Our guest is Dr. Gabrielle Macaron, a neuroimmunologist from St. Joseph University in Beirut, Lebanon, and the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. We've been talking about identifying red flags that point to an alternate diagnosis to MS. I'd like to turn now to our second learning objective common errors in the interpretation and application of the MS diagnostic criteria. With that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Macaron, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. This is a 58-year-old woman. She is obese and has a long-standing history of smoking. She comes in for a second opinion on her MS treatment. She complains of chronic migraines for the past 30 years and hypertension for the past 13 years. She was diagnosed with MS three years ago, and she has been on glatiramer acetate since. She started to be bothered by the injections, which are causing skin reactions at the injection site. She's come to you for a second opinion on her treatment because of skin reactions at the injection sites. What's notable about her history? When we inquire about how her MS started, she states that the first neurological symptoms occurred five years earlier when she suddenly noticed an altitudinal visual field defect in the left eye. She was basically unable to see in both upper quadrants as if there was a black curtain that fell down in front of that eye. Symptoms partially resolved on their own within three days. And at that time, a brain MRI was done and showed several white matter abnormalities, and she was told that she may have MS. 
Two years later, she started having worse migraines. So another brain MRI was done for that and showed an increase in the number of lesions. So she was started on glateromer acetate at that point. She has not experienced any uh, new neurological symptoms since. So right now, what kind of symptoms is she having? She has several daily symptoms, such as cognitive difficulties. She complains of misplacing objects, racing thoughts, word-finding difficulties. She also has tension-type headache, chronic neck pain, muscle pains in the arms and the forearms, intermittent tingling in the hands that comes and goes, frequent urination, daily fatigue. She mentioned being intolerant to heat, and she described that as having profuse sweating and skin redness with hot weather. Her neurological examination was normal, except for attention difficulties when trying to calculate. She also had pain when we palpated the neck muscles and the proximal upper extremity muscles and decreased deep tendon reflexes in the ankles bilaterally. Tell us about her most recent MRI. Review of her last MRI shows 12 small round lesions in the subcortical regions, predominantly in the frontal lobes. She also had one small juxtacortical lesion and two round periventricular lesions without abnormal enhancement in any of those lesions. And when we compared this image to her previous scan, she had three subcortical lesions and one periventricular lesions that were new. In your newsletter issue, you explain the 2017 McDonald criteria for diagnosing multiple sclerosis. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you, when this patient was first diagnosed and starting on the disease-modifying therapy, do you think at that time she actually met the McDonald MS diagnostic criteria, particularly the requirements for lesion dissemination in space and dissemination in time? Uh, doctor, what are your thoughts here? So for dissemination in space criteria, we technically need at least one lesion in at least two of the following location. Juxtacortical, that means a lesion that touches the cortex. Periventricular, which is a lesion that touches the ventricular wall. Infratentorial, and the spinal cord. So yes, she technically does meet dissemination in space. For the dissemination in time criteria on MRI, we need either enhancing and non-enhancing lesions on one MRI or an increase in the number of lesions over time. And that was the case for this patient. So yes, she technically does meet dissemination in time as well. But it's important to note that most of this patient's lesions are actually subcortical and nonspecific. Those are frequently misclassified as juxtacortical or periventricular. And it's important to look closely if there is normal white matter between the cortex or the ventricular wall and the lesion before qualifying the lesion as typical of MS. The morphology of the lesion is also very important. In the 2017 McDonald Criteria Position paper, it is clearly stated that age-related vascular white matter lesions might be periventricular, and we need to seek more than one periventricular lesion, which has a morphology characteristic of MS, before considering this lesion as typical of MS and for dissemination in space. MS lesions are typically ovoid and larger than 3 mm. And in this case, most lesions were small, round, or punctiform. And finally, I want to mention another MRI sign that can orient us, the central vein sign. We usually see this on susceptibility weighting imaging. It has been recently shown to be a very promising diagnostic biomarker of MS, and there are several recent studies that have demonstrated that this sign is seen in approximately 80% of lesions in confirmed MS, and only 20% or less in white matter abnormalities that are associated to other disorders. 
So in the case of our patient, the lesions on MRI appear to be microangiopathic or vascular, but her lesions could also be related to her migraine, since migraine lesions are often subcortical, bifrontal, and punctuate. The specific clinical red flags in this patient that raise concern her MS diagnosis is not supported by the diagnostic criteria. What are you seeing? In this case, there are several clinical red flags. First, the age of onset, which is somewhat late for MS. Second, the fact that her initial clinical event presented suddenly, and this is mostly compatible with an occlusion of a branch of the retinal artery rather than an MS-related optic neuritis. Also, repeat MRI was done for worsening headache, so this patient basically did not have at any point an episode suggestive of an MS relapse. And although the daily symptoms that the patient complained about are frequent in MS, especially in patients with secondary progressive MS or long-standing MS, those symptoms are nonspecific and we very frequently see them in fibromyalgia, depression, and other commonly encountered disorders. To summarize, based on our MRI, this patient did meet the criteria for dissemination in space and dissemination in time, but her clinical presentation was atypical of MS. What does this mean about how the McDonald criteria might be appropriate in this type of situation? This case perfectly illustrates how the clinical probability of MS can affect the accuracy of the McDonald criteria. In the commentary section of my newsletter issue, I pointed out that a major contributor to misdiagnosis is the inappropriate application of the diagnostic criteria for patients with nonspecific or atypical neurological symptoms in whom over-relying on MRI abnormalities can lead to the inappropriate consideration of both dissemination in space or dissemination in time based on the MRI only. Two of the articles I also reviewed in my newsletter were 2021 papers by Andrew Salomon and colleague about neurologist comprehension and the ability to accurately apply the McDonald criteria. And both articles illustrate that there are considerable knowledge gaps in the core elements of the diagnostic criteria in trainees, non-MS specialists, and even MS specialists. So again, it's really important to understand that those criteria are not intended for just any patients with any neurological symptoms and any white matter abnormality on brain MRI. They were really developed to reliably recognize MS in patients with a typical clinical episode and in whom an alternative diagnosis is unlikely. So in other words, the positive predictive value of the diagnostic criteria really depend on the likelihood of having MS before applying them. A final question, Dr. Macaron. In a situation like this, where the presentation is atypical, what preclinical tests could have been used to further clarify the diagnosis? First, cervical and thoracic spine MRI can be very helpful in this setting, since we do not expect to see any lesions in the spinal cord in a patient who has vascular lesions or migraine-related lesions and no episode typical of MS. The positive predictive value of this test is high. However, there are some patients with MS who do not have cord lesions too. Of course, CSF studies would have definitely been helpful here. If no intrathecal synthesis or negative oligoclonal bands is found, then the diagnosis of MS becomes even less likely. The data have shown that more than 90% of patients with MS have positive oligoclonal bands, and especially many years after the diagnosis. Thank you, Dr. Macaron, for sharing your insights with us today. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective, common errors in the interpretation and application of the MS diagnostic criteria. What should our listeners take away from our discussion? First, I will start by quoting a sentence from the 2017 McDonald's Criteria paper, 
which says the positive and negative predictive power of diagnostic tests depends on the pretest probability or the likelihood of the disorder, which has important implication for the interpretation of the available data concerning the usefulness of such tests. So we do need to understand that this pretest probability changes considerably the accuracy of the diagnostic criteria. Second, it's very important to consider the clinical presentation first and to not over-rely on MRI abnormalities in non-typical contexts. And finally, I want to emphasize that periventricular lesions touch the ventricular wall and juxtacortical lesions touch the cortex, and there's no normal appearing white matter in between. And this is very important because nonspecific subcortical lesions are often incorrectly considered periventricular or juxtacortical, and this is a major cause of misapplication of the dissemination in space criteria. From St. Joseph University's Hotel Dieu de France Hospital in Beirut, Lebanon, and the Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, Dr. Gabrielle Macaron, thank you for joining us for this eMultiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. Thank you, Bob. It has really been my pleasure, and I hope our listeners found this discussion useful. For eMultiple Sclerosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at emultiplesclerosis.dkbmed.com. Emultiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and Sanofi Genzyme. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.